This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. Jeff Bezos is my daddy, and the best way to support my daddy is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the supporter artist button, shop on Amazon like Nerlywood, and I get a little kickback. Please feed the daddy. This week's episode of Uncomedy Writing is brought to you by the Satire and Humor Festival. There's a brand new festival in New York, and it's coming up March 22nd to Mar- through March 24th at Caveat and Magnet Theater. It's the Satire and Humor Festival. It focuses on the kind of written humor and satire pieces you would see in places like McSweeney's, The New Yorker, The Belladonna, and Points in Case. It's run by two former uh, OCW guests, uh, Caitlin Kunkel and James Fulta. The festival has six workshops, panels ranging from diversity in the field to how people went on to write for TV, and a panel on writing, selling, and marketing humor books. Uh, that sounds great. You know, It seems like a great thing for uh, people who listen to this podcast. It also seems like I think it's during a spring break, maybe. I, I should know. I do have spring break, but I don't think it's during mine. Uh, the festival will feature Emma Allen, the editor of The New Yorker's Shouts and Murmurs, as well as the cartoons. Uh, right, oh, sorry. I read that wrong. She edits The Shouts and Murmurs as well as the cartoons. Writers from McSweeney's, Full Frontal, Late Night with Seth Meyers, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and more. Check out their website, www.satireandhumor.com, for festival passes and one-off tickets to events. Hey, I recommend it. Uh, go, go do it. Sound, uh, if, you know, when I was in college and it was during my spring break, this would definitely be something I would have done, uh, because I am a comedy nerd, which honestly, if you're listening to this, you have to be, why would you listen to this? If you weren't, it would be funny if someone didn't like comedy, but listen to this, uh, it would be weird. I guess my friends are kind of like that. I'm kind of rambling here, but saturnhumor.com. Go check that out. Her festival passes when I tickets to events, check it out. <laughs> On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. Our guest week is Eric Drysdale. He started at The Daily Show, then left to go to The Colbert Report when that show started, was there for nearly the entire round of that show, then went to The Late Show with Colbert, and was most recently writing for Full Frontal. A lot of great experience in some of the uh, the best late night shows ever during like the best time ever maybe for late night uh, political late night at least uh, really interesting guy so here is Eric Drysdale uh, Eric thanks for coming on the show my pleasure uh, where are you from originally uh, we moved around a lot uh, uh, we my father was uh, involved with um, uh, he was a I hate explaining this. Uh, he he worked for various Jewish philanthropies as a fundraiser, um, and uh, we he we traveled around a lot for that job. So we were in um, Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, Akron, Ohio. Uh, we were in Paris, France for a little while. Um, uh, all sorts of places. So like uh, my sister, who's ten years younger than me, then who's also a comedian. Uh, when people ask her where she grew up, she says. Oh, Montreal and Vancouver. When people ask me where I woke up, where I, I grew up, I say, "Oh, well, uh, Akron, Ohio, <laughs> Akron, Ohio, and Paris, France." Yeah, how old were you when you were in Paris? Uh, between the ages of like fourteen and eighteen, fourteen and thirteen and seventeen. Yeah. Oh, so you like basically did like high school there? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that must have been like pretty pretty crazy. It was. I mean, honestly, like I think that the reason that there are two professional comedians in the family is because, you know, moving around 
uh, was traumatic and right. you had to have some kind of survival technique to fit in and it was mm. you know kind of make yourself not a target by by being the funny one right um and i think that goes for me and her as well uh so um you know it it was great to be in paris as a high school student uh it was shitty to be in three different high schools in three different countries during high school yeah. and to have to move to a new high school in october of my senior year oh wow yeah so like um you know there were, there are definitely great things about being in paris like i have a sister that's 2 years younger than me she and it was actually very very traumatic for her to be in uh in paris and and taken away from all of the comforts that you know she had gotten used to in uh america and uh you know there were uh yeah it was uh it was really defining all of the moving around but mm -hmm. uh not all for the good right right do you keep in touch with anybody from like Paris, for instance? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's the we. I went to an international school there, the American School of Paris, though a lot of different kinds of people went there, right? Um, and uh, and yeah, there you because you are this kind of uh, outsider in in a strange place. You do form a bond with those people, yeah. and I I do keep in touch with them, uh, a, a bunch of them. Uh, kind of almost more than other people that I've kept in touch with, just because there was that thing that we were all in this weird situation together. Yeah, and you kind of have to stick together. For yeah, that. Tracy Ellis Ross went there very briefly while I was oh. there. Uh, I think. Uh, she, oh, did you know her? I didn't know her, but everyone was like, Shh, it's, it's, "It's the daughter of Killer." Oh, like, right, because she's like, yeah, she's got yeah. pedigree. <laughs> yeah, uh, she was there for a little while. My sister knew her. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, what kind of comedy stuff Rick, were you watching during this time? Um, I mean, I was super into... Uh, I mean, I always wanted to be a late-night comedy writer from the time that I knew... I mean, I didn't even know it was a thing you could do. I, I, I mean, but, you know, the fir from the first time I ever saw Saturday Night Live, you know, I was, you know, doing... I was, you know, getting friends together and doing, you know, sketches with them the next day, you know, for our parents and stuff. And... uh but um, during that time, uh, kind of from middle school through high school, it was definitely SNL and most importantly, Letterman. Uh, that was the big one. I, I, I actually sent a, a blind writing sample to him when I was 14 years old. That's awesome. Uh, which got sent back unopened. Uh, and then <laughs> when I moved to France, we actually had to... Um, I, had, I had a friend in uh, New York who would tape the shows for me and put like eight of them on a VHS cassette and send them to me. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, and you, and there, I had to like hook the TV up to this giant transformer, like to have an NTSC TV and an NTSC VCR running. And, oh, right. Yeah. So, uh, I went to a lot of trouble to be able to see even, uh, David Letterman. And then, uh, you know, again, it was all I ever wanted to do. And mm -hmm. yeah. And so, uh, those were the ones that were really important to me. Uh, you know, in college it was Conan, and then uh, yeah, that's, those are those are the three big ones. What was your what was your Letterman uh, packet like back then? Oh, geez, I have ex actually I have no recollection at all uh -huh. what was in there. Do you think you did like monologue jokes though? Like, I can't imagine. I probably. <laughs> that's funny. 
Uh, did you read the Letterman book? I haven't read it. Yet. I, start, I have not yet. I started reading it. Uh, I heard it's great, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah, I haven't read it yet either. He's a, he's an interesting guy, Letterman. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like, I mean, it's it's also crazy. He started like as a weatherman, right? Right. And then yeah. became this like iconic late night host. Well, crazy. I'm not going to say how old I am, but I'm old enough to remember staying sick home from school one day and seeing his morning show. Oh right, yeah. Because he had a morning show, and I I knew that I liked it. For some reason, it was. I remember it being very strange. I only saw like one or two episodes, uh, but and only later when I was already a David Letterman fan, and then heard, oh, he had that morning show. I was like, oh, that's what that weird thing is <laughs> that I saw one day when I was sick. I was not, you know, it was not some flu induced mania. <laughs> there was something actually that weird on at. Uh, you know, eleven in the morning, whatever it was. So, was his morning show similar like to the late night show? It, you know, I I don't I, the only thing I remember about it. I mean, the only like you know firsthand memory I have it of it was there there were there was a bit they did and there were little uh, like railroad train car models like of people sitting on a clock and there there were and it was just like I don't know what the joke was I don't remember what the <laughs> thing was but just seeing this weird image. For so long, yeah. it just and his attitude towards it, it was like I knew that was there was something off. I'm a, I mean I don't know when that show was. I don't know how old I was, but um, yeah, it it struck me at the time, and then looking back, and I was like, oh, that's that crazy thing that I saw. Right. It's interesting that morning shows are very much like all the same kind of like the generic morning show, and yeah. there hasn't been like any sort of because that seems like that's a place where people could do something interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, so where'd you go to college? Uh, I went to Emerson College in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not really out of choice, but just like, um, it was the place that I got into. And I yeah. think that you'll find that, um, you know, there's this, it's, it, for a long time, Emerson had a reputation as being a school where comedians went, but I think that it, it has that, it had that reputation for a long time because it was the place where people who had no idea what the fuck they were doing went. <laughs> um, and, uh, but now they, it's something that they really, they kind of bank on, they nurture. Mm-hmm. Um, they're doing a comedy festival in a, in a couple weeks that I'm taking part in. Um, but, uh, it was a really good kind of, at the time, you know, a comedy wasn't as much of a big deal, but it was, we had three comedy groups on the campus, right. which was a lot for the time. So, uh, now I feel like any campus has one or two mm-hmm. at least. Uh, but well, Emerson probably has like ten now, right? Something like that. Yeah. I don't know. But the, I think the one I'm, I was, yeah, the one that I was in is still around. This, which they mercifully renamed because it was called the Swollen Monkey Showcase, which I thought was <laughs> terrible even at the time, and now they call it Swomo, which I'm not sure if it's better than. Or oh, worse. interesting. <laughs> Did you have you seen that that big Emerson building on uh, in Sunset oh, Boulevard? Yeah, yeah. Sure. That's crazy. It's a crazy nice building. Yeah, I've been in there. Oh yeah, is it is yeah. it nice inside? Yeah. So I always, I used to live in LA, so I always drive by that. Yeah, like, what's what's going on in there? Yeah, that's they they live in there too, right? Oh, I don't know. Oh, this yeah. No, I did the LA program when I was there, but it was a long time ago, and mm-hmm. uh, we lived in the Oakwood apartments. I I did an LA program too and lived in the Oakwood apartments. Yeah, Those was, are so sad. Yeah, it was really actually very very grim and turned me off of LA immediately. And I I hightailed it and and was like, nope, it's New York for me. And it was because of the Oakwoods, you think? I mean, it was the whole thing. I mean, it, it was a confluence of terrible things that happened you yeah. know i i was in a i was driving this uh 1980 
Monte Carlo that was like the size of a boat. And uh, on like my first or second day there, I got into an accident and ripped the transmission out of it. So for the rest of the time that I was there, I uh, I drifted to the left, <laughs> and, it was, and and the cassette player in it played like one point five times too fast, right? <laughs> and um, it was such a gas guzzler that like I couldn't afford to keep it running, so I would have to walk places in L.A. <laughs> it was just a whole bad situation. That sounds like such like a like a Kafka short story where yeah. like the, the music's playing too fast. You're going to the left the entire yeah. Time. Oh, it was just yeah. And it, again, like the, the, those two things, like they seem very small, but like when you put them together, and you have to deal with it every yeah. single day. I was just so I felt so put upon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only cool thing was that uh, at the time that we were we were living there, Nirvana was also living there, recording uh, in utero, I think, one of their Nir- Nirvana recorded in utero at the Oakland No, no, they didn't, in, they didn't record <laughs> it there. They they just, they just uh, were staying there while they were recording, or staying there sometimes, but there were sightings. Wow, that's cr- that's crazy. Yeah, interesting. I, I never like saw them like around the pool or anything, but like, <laughs> yeah. Wow. What, which, which Oakwoods did you stay at? The one in Toluca Lake. Uh, okay, I stayed in the one in Marina Del Rey. <laughs> yeah. Great place. Hey, Oakwoods, if you want to... Uh, Sponsor this. Let me know. <laughs> yeah, we've been so complimented. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so after after college, did you go to New York? I did. What made you decide to do that? Um, again, I had had a kind of bad experience in L.A. And, um, you know, uh, all the late, the late night shows that I was interested in, in were here. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, it was SNL and Conan primarily. Uh when it was still on NBC and uh, it seemed like there was some stand-up going on here and yeah, that was it. How, how I guess, uh, how big a deal were like the late night shows at that time? Cause I know like today they're kind of, uh, they're very much like in the mainstream, like people know about them a lot. And I feel, I don't know. It feels like uh, I wouldn't necessarily think those would be like the, as big a deal back then. Well, it's interesting that you say that like, because, you know, the the thing I think one of the things that appealed to me about Letterman for sure uh, and definitely SNL at, at an early point and definitely Conan, uh, Conan, I mean, in, in addition to kind of very much being in tune with the comedy that they were making was the sense that you were part of this kind of exclusive club. Like if you could stay up until 1230 to watch Conan do some weird thing like you sort of felt like and you did have to like wait and watch like you could videotape it or whatever but like for the most part you know you were you were watching it when it was on and uh it did have and the the shows were kind of dark and quiet and uh it kind of felt like something that was just for you mm-hmm. um you know it was part of the culture it was you know something that people talked about when you know there was that whole I don't think there was a beer entertainment story than like the late night wars, you know, when, uh, when that whole thing with Jay Leno went down and, uh, uh, Letterman moved to CBS. Like that was all huge news. Um, I don't think that they were looking to, I mean, people, there were definitely topical jokes on late night comedy. I don't know how much, that was reflected back into the culture back then the way it is now, like the way that like when there's a really good joke, everybody hears about it eventually. Uh, but yeah, it was a big part of the culture. I mean, there was no bigger star than Johnny Carson at the time. 
that he was doing right. his thing, you know. What was uh what was like the New York comedy scene like back then? Um it was actually it pretty it was a pretty interesting time to be here. This is um uh, I arrived in uh the mid 90s and uh started doing stand up because uh I had had a plan to move here with uh some people from a comedy group and do some stuff with them, but there was a a romantic breakup and <laughs> classic. Uh, yeah, classic. And uh so I was on my own and figured the only way for me to get out there and for people to connect my writing with me was to do stand up. Which I never loved, but I, you know, did it because it was a straightforward way to say, hey, these are the jokes that I'm writing. Mm-hmm. And uh so at that time, uh you know, the the options for comedians were to mostly go to the big comedy clubs and to a very smaller extent to do alternative rooms there weren't that many of them back then now it's almost the opposite now that now there's a incredible what they now call alternative scene which is actually what most people who go will come to new york to do comedy will go to those places not to the comedy store to you know places like that um so yeah, uh, at the time I went, so I started doing stuff in, you know, you know, do bring, bringer shows in, you know, places where you have to pay a two drink minimum and things like that. And, uh, my stuff did not, you know, it was, I wouldn't say it didn't go over well. It just wasn't the kind of thing that like it didn't, it, even though I did fine sometimes it didn't make sense in those spaces. And, uh, I kind of got discouraged by that. And I also got discouraged by the fact that I had just moved to New York, didn't have many friends. And the first thing that I was doing was asking them to spend 50 bucks <laughs> right. of money that they didn't have coming to support me doing comedy, which, you know, you can ask once or twice, but you can't make a career out of it. Um, but luckily, uh, well, I mean, honestly, not luckily because I actually didn't know much about the alternative scene and somehow missed it. Uh, and I actually quit comedy for a little while, like almost three years, which ended up being a necessary thing because I uh, I also had to learn how to like make a, you know, I had to learn to uh, be an adult and like I got evicted from my apartment, you know, just because I, you know, wasn't able to keep a job because I was smoking pot all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had I had a lot of growing up to do before I got mm-hmm. uh, kind of on that career path. Um, you know, I, I needed a day job that I was able to hold down. And so I cultivated that for a little while. And then in, uh, sorry, in, uh, 19, in 1996 or seven, I saw an, uh, an article in the New York times about re- rebar oh, yeah. on the lower East side. And, uh, it made me jealous <laughs> that I wasn't doing it anymore. And I went down and started watching comedy again. And, uh, started doing uh, open mic shows around that I started hearing about and uh, eventually kind of got back into it. Um, and then, yeah, so, and then, in, so I was doing places like uh, Surf Reality was a downtown place that was kind of uh, geared toward, I mean, it wasn't geared towards anything, which was, was nice about it. a guy named Faceboy ran it uh, on the Lower East Side and uh, Reverend Jen, and uh, it was you know, they called them art stars and they still do. Uh, and they're lovely people. And, uh, they, uh, it was really anything goes. And the deal was that if you showed up and you put your name in and you got picked, you would get eight minutes 
of stage time no matter what. And that often meant that you were there until four in the morning. Huh. But it was very egalitarian and everybody got eight minutes. And sometimes it was, you know, somebody putting something in their hoo-ha or something, you know, or, uh, a you know, a very dark poetry reading or, uh, what else? Oh, oh somebody uh, threatened the audience once with a gun. Oh wow! <laughs> actually, that actually that happened at Collective Unconscious, I think, um, which was a similar venue uh, quite nearby. Um, things like that, uh, and then like a comedian doing, <laughs> yeah, doing a tight five. That's crazy. How do you? How would you follow something up like that? If you're if you're like you know somebody's um, sticking something up their butt or something, and then you have to go on and be like, <laughs> uh, you know, airplane airplane food's weird. I mean, it's sort of what was expected at that show. Yeah. It was really, it it really was the nurturing anything goes environment that many people pay lip service to but don't actually follow right. through on. And uh, I give a lot of credit to uh, Faceboy and to. Uh, uh, Robert Pritchard, who ran it, and uh, all those people who uh, really made it a, a place to be. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something earlier about how um, you t- you turned to stand-up because you wanted to like get your jokes out there mm-hmm. some way. Do you think, because I wonder about that, because I, I do a little bit of improv and sketch, but there's a lot of writers who don't want to perform at all. Do you think they like have to perform to really get a some sort of whole foot footing? I, I don't think that... Um... I honestly don't have uh I don't I don't know what I would do today if I were a writer. Mm-hmm. I just didn't I was just doing the thing that I thought of first like I I'm sure that there are other ways. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I know that you know some definitely some people at the Daily Show, you know, came through magazine writing and I know that you know even recently I've spoken to agents and you know people in the business who say, "Well, your writing sample doesn't have to be a uh, a script it can be you know something you wrote for shouts and murmurs or mm. you know a comedy piece or a comic book or you know whatever so i think there are ways to to get in it just seemed like the most direct and uh sensible to me it was a form that i was familiar with and mm-hmm. and i didn't have to wait for anybody or you know make a meeting to you know vote on sketches and things like right. that so yeah <laughs> What do you think is the the biggest difference between the comedy scene back then and the comedy scene now? I think the biggest difference between then and now is uh, I think that there it's just much easier to be in touch with what your options are going in, and there's more there are more examples of things to emulate and ways to emulate it, and access to the information on how to emulate mm. it. Like I don't think that. I think that if you are a person anywhere in the world and are thinking about trying to start a comedy career, you can find out how to do it now. And I don't know that that was as easy. You know, I you you I listened to a lot of this kind of podcasts, and you know, I said it myself earlier. I said like I didn't know that that was a thing that you could do even. You know, and uh, I think people now are starting. You know, I think that it's if it's something you want to do, you can find out how to do it. Mm-hmm. Find a podcast. Find a you know right there's a there's a way to see like a path to yeah. what you want which means there's more i think there's more people probably than ever doing it right oh now. absolutely absolutely which is uh it's interesting to think about how like you know 
I mean, I guess because you were kind of around when UCB was coming up. Yes, absolutely. And it's funny to think about how that that was probably a, a much like you know people are like, what is this thing? And then there's like all sorts of weirdos coming in, and now oh, yeah. it's like people who are like I've wanted to do UCB since I was 12, and right. I'm coming in. No, it's very different. No, I I I have known those guys for a long time, and saw them at Solo Arts when they were you know they opened for my, one of my friends' uh, stand up shows once. Um, uh, yeah, that was a very I, I was it's funny I was uh, people think that I was like a UCB guy sometimes because I I it, the the scene was so small at that time that like I was a comedian in the city so once in a while I did things with UCB <laughs> like uh, it doesn't work that way anymore um, uh, UCB is kind of its own its own big thing uh, but you know at the time it was just one of the places that I performed a lot mm-hmm. I did a few shows there that you know just kind of solo shows or things that i put on with friends um and yeah i i i was i did stuff at every theater the one on when it was on 22nd when it was on that permanent that temporary space that it was in after that yeah uh and i guess you, you did this uh i just want to switch gears real quick you did this bit on premium blend oh boy okay uh, the the Rubik's Cube. What's yeah. it called again? It's a... Uh... This Rubik's Cube is driving me crazy. Yeah. Well, okay, so first of all, what was the genesis? How'd you get oh, how'd you get on Premium Blend okay. to do that bit? Because that seems also kind of crazy to me. Um, so, again, uh, so one of the other things about the stand-up is that even though I saw it as a way to get it, like, it wasn't something that anybody... I mean, people would... I would come off stage and people would say, hey, that's great writing. <laughs> Nobody ever said, hey, you're great. <laughs> hey, you're a great stand-up. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the... Um, I was just in a place of no fear and like just trying any, trying anything. And uh, that the Rubik's Cube uh, song came from, it actually is something that I stole from a spec script that I wrote. The first spec script I ever wrote was for, and again, I'm showing my age, uh, was for um, news radio. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, um, it was uh, it was and when and Phil Hartman died and it was absolutely tragic and the season after uh, John Lovitz came in and I think that John Lovitz really gets a bad rap and is like considered some kind of gimmick comedian or something mm-hmm. uh, but um, I was a huge John Lovitz fan at the time and was kind of excited about him taking the role though sad that uh, Phil Hartman was leaving and I wrote a spec script I that I actually ended up I was not even in the business enough to like get it seen anywhere or do anything <laughs> with it. But one of but the joke was that basically everybody in the office finds out that the John Lovitz character had been this novelty songwriter. Okay, um, <laughs> uh, and had had these novelty hit songs. That's a uh, great sitcom like uh, storyline. Yeah, that's really funny. Uh, um, so, uh, but so since the script wasn't going to do anything anyway, I just took the song and uh, started doing the character around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and the way it got on premium blend is I was doing these kind of downtown, uh, alternative shows and, uh, I did one that, and the Luna lounge was one where kind of alternative and more mainstream comics would perform on the same stage, uh, run by a guy named Jeff Singer, who's now involved with just for laughs. And, uh, I did a show once that Louis CK was on and Louis, uh, liked the bit and then brought me he was doing a monthly show at UCB he was doing um, a show called the Filthy Stupid Talent Show 
and uh, I got to do that for a, a couple months, and that's where the people from Comedy Central, I think, saw it and mm. brought me out. That seems like because um, I always associate like premium blend with like a very like like comedy club stand up kind of like you know aggressive like yeah actually if you look closely though the um at least the season that I was on they made an effort to do two straight stand ups and the last thing was kind of like a character or a, oh interesting I mean okay. not always but often you know uh, I think Mary Birdsong did it and Rob Paravonian did it a few times. Um, Karen Kilgariff did it, I think. You know, in that kind of final mm-hmm. singity, singity, do something weird spot. Yeah, is it, was it weird to like go on after like two comedians then and and do that bit? Uh, going on after a comedian wasn't the weirdest thing about. It. I mean, it was just being in a place with a thousand people in it for the first <laughs> time and kind of you know in this TV taping situation with a lot of pressure and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even think about following somebody. I was just right. a nervous wreck all around do you uh do you like doing like comedy songs like parody songs i do i mean yeah. it, it, that, that's a re- i mean it's really funny it's oh great. thank you no i it was it, it actually became kind of uh for a long time for like the first because the the i taped that in 19 in like august of 1999 it got on the air in january of 2000 i think and um i had been doing it like on the in the clubs and at the at Louis show since like nineteen early nineteen ninety eight, so and it was something that like people would say, "Oh, come and do this bit for us," and I was really worried like that I was just going to be the Rubik's cube guy for <laughs> yeah. the rest of my life. I mean, I really I like, and it got to a point where like I wrote some other things and like came back to Louis and he graciously let me do something else once, <laughs> and then he said, "Why don't you come back and do the." um but uh yeah it's i i guess do you do you know because i think it's it is a very popular bit today Mm -hmm. even like people still talk about that yeah once in a while it'll bubble up on twitter and i'm really i'm really proud of it i love it i think it's still very funny yeah um yeah and it it sort of made my career because it was um and obviously you know the the um the Comedy Central talent people were in touch with the Daily Show people, and that's how I got brought onto the Daily Show. Oh, wow. So you got brought on because of that. I mean, not because much? of it, but, but yeah. I mean, I had already kind of built a little bit of a reputation as a stand-up and doing this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and But uh, that's when I first like met people who were Comedy Central executives. and mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have to do a, a packet for that I show? I did do a packet, yeah. What, what was that packet like? Was it like similar to what late night packets are today? Uh, quite. Yeah, yeah, it was just a bunch of stuff that you might see on the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I picked a bunch of headlines, and then a couple weeks later, I got a call back, and said they said, uh, "Come back in tomorrow, but write this thing." And so I did. I had to, you know, write something on a short, short notice. I came in the next day and uh, had a very intense meeting and was hired. Were you uh, doing like any political comedy at the time? Absolutely none. That's interesting because then that became like a, it really became my career. Yeah, yeah. Were you uh, like into politics like as a I guess hobby? It's weird to say hobby, but I as mean, an interest. I, I was, pol- I was, I definitely wasn't planning on going into a career as being being a political comedian, um, and I, I wouldn't have stayed if I if if that's all I thought I was doing. Um, like I feel like. You know, I was always looking for opportunities to just do comedy, to just 
do something silly and fun within the within the constraints of you know you know what the Daily Show's mission was or what the Colbert right. Report's mission was. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's never something I thought that I would be doing. Mm-hmm. And that show at the time was was kind of unknown still, right? Well, it was it, it it had a bit of a cult following. It was uh, I came in about six months after John Stewart started. And so John was sort of just starting to make his creative mark on the show, mm-hmm. um, uh, which uh, it was a difficult time. The The Daily Show oral history book does a good to, does a good job of uh, kind of describing what that time was like. Um, he, you know, he's the show was very different with Craig Kilborn. It was kind of snarky and uh, ironic in in a in a way, uh, and I liked it. I thought it was fine. Um, but I was a fan of John Stewart as a stand-up, and when I heard, and I wasn't really interested in writing for um, Kilborn, but and I had actually never seen uh, the Daily Show. I didn't have cable at the time; I just couldn't afford it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I got cable and <laughs> wrote wrote a packet and uh, got the job. What was like that transition like to your first TV writing job? Uh, it was absolutely terrifying. And it actually wasn't my first terror, my first uh, comedy writing TV job. I had, um, this, like, as a weird kind of blip, um, right after I graduated high school in Vancouver, uh, a couple friends of mine and I went to a, there was like a public casting call in the Vancouver paper for a new sketch, not sketch show, like a TV show, late night TV show that was supposedly like by written by teens for teens okay and they wanted to find like a cast of of young canadians like representing you know the full canadian landscape to uh to be the hosts of the show and uh, a couple friends of mine and i we had no interest in being on the show but we were like we'll go and we'll bring sketch packets which is something so crazy only like a 18 and 19 year old person would ever do that don't do that. <laughs> Don't go to auditions with writing packets. That's not good advice. Right. Um, it happened to work for us, but don't do that. Um, yeah, and to our absolute shock, they hired the three of us as writers. Um, and wow, so, <laughs> that's crazy. So yeah, I was uh, I was 19 years old, and I spent you know it was eight months uh, wow. writing writing for CBC, a uh, late night show called Pilot One. There are some clips on the internet. What was, oh wow, that's so interesting. What's it like being like a nineteen-year-old uh, sketch writer writing for teens? Like you're writing comedy for teens, right? So that's kind of everything about that's so strange. Well, I mean, they, it wasn't. They didn't explicitly say it was for teens, and I never uh-huh. thought of it as I was doing it for teens. I was a teenager. Uh-huh. Um, I, I was just thrilled to be able to write comedy. And there's there there's one or two things that I'm still I still think. Oh, you know, that's pretty cool that I got that on TV mm-hmm. when I was nineteen. Uh, but again, it was a blip, and it was twelve years before I worked in the business again. Wow! Yeah. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Well, uh, yeah, I'm still just thinking about, <laughs> I'm still thinking about that show. Uh, so, what, what, were the it was like run by adults, but you were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it like? I don't know. I mean, what was that like? What was that whole experience like? Well, it was it was disillusioning in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one of the you know, for me, it was very exciting, and uh, there it was. It was a lesson in don't be too excited, <laughs> um, just because 
I was excited to like pitch things and get them on the air, um, which happened from time to time. But it was done under the purview of the CBC's children's programming department. Okay. Even though it was a late night show. Um, so there are a lot of weird notes <laughs> coming down and uh, I was a little out of the um, decision making process but there was just this kind of weird tense energy around it that was never super fun. Right. Um, I knew that there were, you know, that the that the show was in trouble with the ratings and people watching and uh, the network not liking the direction of the show, blah, blah, blah. Um, so like the degree to which it was like a business and not, we're just all, we're all here having fun. I think that, that kind of was a reality check. And did you, did, so did that, would you find that to be true throughout your career more, but like less disillusioning, but like, cause you kind of felt like it was more like work. Yeah, I think so. I think that I, I, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready right, to, right. I wasn't ready to be in a situation where the comedy was work and somebody was expecting something of me and where, you know, there's this whole huge, in this case, publicly publicly owned uh, <laughs> uh, machinery on top of you. Yeah. So back to the Daily Show. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. That was no, very but, that was a very interesting. To, uh, sub, yeah, because yeah, you said it was the first, and it's yeah. technically not the first. Uh-huh. But what was it? What was it like uh, joining that? Which I guess is it like... was still terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, just because of the sheer volume of uh, of material you're expected to produce on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. you know and coming from the world of you know doing stand-up a couple times a week you know and you know trying to add a couple minutes of jokes here and there when i could which Mm -hmm. you know there wasn't any there wasn't anybody you know in my face saying you've got to have five new minutes Right. Uh, for your next stand-up act but now there was literally somebody saying you need five minutes tomorrow yeah. and you need then oh here's again today you need five minutes now you need another five you need six minutes today and you know another seven minutes that was absolutely the most terrifying time of my career and how long does it take you to like get to that's where that that's not terrifying i mean not terrifying but it's like it's, it seems very easier to accomplish uh it took about three years wow okay so that's a long time yeah that, oh, I mean, there were there were other things going on because the show was changing and and John's expectations of what the show was and what the writers were contributing to it were changing, um, so that was part of the adjustment too. Yeah. But yeah, it took a long time for me to kind of go in in the in the morning without any anxiety about like, oh my god, am I going to get fired today? Right. Yeah. And you've been writing like daily comedy shows for like a long time. Well, I had been. Yeah, I, I the. Samantha B, which I had been at, uh, I left about a few months ago, uh, was once a week. So, oh, that's right. But uh, but you still had like a decade, right? Of mm-hmm. a, yeah. So, what's it? I mean, do, does it ever? Is does it always feel like a grind? No, I actually, you know, I've been, I've been, um, not I've been not going to an office for the first time in a long time uh, over the last couple months. And I really miss, um, you know, it, you have a you have a voice in the process of like what you do every day. But at the but since a show has to go on every day, if you don't have a great idea in the morning, if you're not at least it's at some point somebody will tell you what to do, and then 
at the end of the day, that assignment will be over and you get to start fresh the next day. And that's something that I that at first terrified me, but eventually came to be a great comfort that I could do the best I can today. And then tomorrow I have another shot. Mm. That That is nice. But I, I always think of like the Louie episode with uh, with Leno. And uh, I guess I forget how it comes. I guess Louie's going to like host the late show or something. Mm-hmm. And he calls Leno and he's like, yeah, it's you can't you can't be funny every day. Or something like that. And he like admits it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, that's true. It is true. I mean, it, that's why these shows have writing staffs of eleven, you know, right. or twelve, you know, uh, because not everybody can be funny every day. Not everybody is funny with every subject. Every, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's just something you have to get used to and be at peace with mm-hmm. that you're not going to nail it every day. When do you think uh, the Daily Show started to become like a cultural like landmark? Um, I think it was the 2000 election, the yeah. um, the the recount in Florida, when people really oh, started. Oh, were you on the staff when that? When yeah, that yeah. What was that like? Whole thing like? Uh, it was crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it felt like you know we were in a really unique position. To, I mean, it, it was unprecedented that you had somebody able to be to comedically dig into something that juicy every single day. You could you would have a couple jokes on it on. Um, you know, on Leno or uh, even Carson would do you know jokes on the thing of the day, but uh, it felt different to really uh, dissect uh, all of the things that were going on with uh, the recount and uh, yeah, dive in and really, really explain it while making jokes about right. it it seemed different it, even at the time mm-hmm. it must be kind of uh strange to tie like all these like moments in 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 life and in like uh, history or i guess like the recent history to like shows you worked on yes like night like 9 11 i'm sure you were working on the show then yes we were uh, definitely at the daily show during 9 11 and i uh and i actually live in the west village and oh. our apartment uh, at the time, uh, had a view of the World Trade Center. Oh, wow. And so I get out of the shower and I go and one of the towers is on fire. And I just say, oh, that seems very bad. Um, I'm going to go to work now. Uh, it didn't occur to me that, you know, anything other than yeah. something terrible, you know, like some fire or something. And by the time I got to the office, both towers were down and uh, all the... Um, Transportation was shut down in the city, um, and basically uh, everybody kind of sat around watching the footage in the office for a little while and lamented that we would never, ever be able to be funny again. Uh, and we went home and waited for a time when we could be funny again. Mm-hmm. And so what was like launching the first show again after that like? You know, I actually don't remember much about it, and I don't remember how long after it was. I mean... I think it was a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, John came out and said something earnest and uh, well-received. And I think we just launched into it and just made sure that we hit the right targets when we were when we were dancing around something that was so sensitive and right. so new. Mm-hmm. I remember everyone, everyone always talks about that onion uh, that came out. Like, yeah. The, like, maybe... I, People, I think it's now like apocryphal. Like you'll say, it came out the next day, but it was probably a couple, like a week later or something. Yeah, something like that. Uh, 
but yeah, it's always interesting to think uh, how long how long should you wait before you do a joke about that? Yeah, it's uh, I don't think it's about how long; it's about what joke you make when you come back. Right? Yeah. Uh, on the Daily Show, what was the process like of writing for correspondence? Um, we well, we, do you mean in the field or in the in the studio? I guess in the field. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the writers were involved with those only in kind of a brainstorming uh, mm. capacity. Um, once in a while, you'd go on shoots. I don't know how it works there now. Probably similarly, uh, but um, yeah, it was more like a um, a brainstorming thing where uh, a couple of writers would be picked to work with the producer and the correspondent, kind of before they go out into the field uh, to kind of. You can never predict what you're going to get, but you can try to set things up, right? Um, or you know things like you know, a more overarching theme or game for what the correspondent is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, we wouldn't. And then once in a while, if they were really struggling uh, when it's being edited and the uh, voiceover is being written or rewritten, sometimes the writers would be brought in on that. And that's, mm-hmm. that's how it went at uh, even Sam B does their field pieces in quite the same mm-hmm. way. Did you did you work a lot with uh, Colbert? I did. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Did you guys find you like a good partnership? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And is that what led to like uh, when his show was announced? You, you yes, did... in part. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. What was what was like that decision like to go to the the new show? Um, I mean, it was complicated in a lot of ways that aren't worth discussing. Mm-hmm. But uh, ultimately, you know, it. Uh, I feel very very lucky to have been able to do that. Um, uh, I had definitely, you know, reached a point on the daily show where I felt like I was ready to go. And this provided a very excellent, you know, just absolutely dream, dream job way of mm-hmm. moving to the next thing. And so I was very excited to do that. How uh, fully formed was like the show idea when, uh, when it was like announced and going through it and you guys started working on it? Uh, it wasn't, I mean, it came from something that was written for the daily show by um, Chris Regan and I believe Steve Bodo. Um, and they wrote a couple of five, five, uh, a couple of like two minute bits, like uh, announcing that there was this Colbert Report show, and uh, kind of based on Bill, very, very much based on Bill O'Reilly at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's all there was. There was like that, and kind of the the character that Colbert had thus far cultivated on The Daily Show. Uh, but beyond that, you know, um, Stephen had some ideas, uh, but we really developed it uh, in the five weeks. And I can't believe it took five. It only took five weeks uh, up to the premiere of the show. What, was, what were those five weeks like? Um, they were really the some of the five. Mo- I mean, they were just so much fun and so exciting. And um I we I mean I remember really feeling like oh man we're really onto something here, um, but also very a lot of worry about like that seems like a lot of Steve Colbert twenty two minutes are people going to watch one guy for twenty two just talking for twenty two minutes in character how is that going to work uh, there was a lot of doubt about it both within and you know from without mm-hmm. um, and uh, but it was really fun because we would try anything and. Mm-hmm. Even if even it wasn't if it wasn't something that Stephen felt like was on the show, there was kind of this free spirit about it. You would come in and you would pitch something, and everybody would laugh. And 
it was really a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, even if it wasn't something that was on the show, uh, you got to write something fun that everybody laughed at and then ruled out. <laughs> how, how long do you think it took you guys to like, like get a hang of the show? Um, it's hard to say when you know when you get a hang of it. I mean, I feel I you know, it feels like in retrospect that it came out pretty fully formed. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the first episode, like it feels like a show. It feels it doesn't feel like it's been on for a long time, but it feels much more put together than Mostly, a first yeah. episode of, of a show that's driven by a character. Should often be. Is. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and you, the, the word segment was in the first show, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. So that's, that was, that kept going for the whole show. Yes. Um, and, uh, God damn it. <laughs> it was the hardest thing to write. Was, I can imagine. Yeah. It was just, uh, we set such a trap for ourselves having, well, why, yeah. Why do you think that that was so difficult to write? Uh, because you had to have a really, you had to re- have a, you had to have a very deep take and a comedic one on something every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, they weren't, they weren't superficial. They were, they, they, they dug in a little bit. Mm-hmm. How do you, in general, how do you approach writing for like that Stephen Colbert character? Um, hmm. I mean, honestly, like the uh, the answer is that I try to think about being the Stephen Colbert character, <laughs> which sounds like a cop out, but that's kind of what it is. Like, yeah, I mean, th- that show just seems so difficult to me to write because you have to. It's like you have to do political satire in the news, then you have to filter it through this Colbert character, mm-hmm. and then you have to do it every night, uh, like five nights a week for like forever. Yeah, no, it was. Um, it was extremely challenging and it's so exciting every like like what was nice about it being so difficult is that it really every single time you pulled it off it felt like you had you had gotten away with something mm-hmm. um and that went on you know from the first show to the very last one and um i never minded working so hard at it because it was i really felt great about the the final product and people noticed and that was great fun mm-hmm. um yeah I I think we're gonna look back at that and be like, that's like the greatest accomplishment. <laughs> I think I really think the I mean for Stephen Colbert, like the guy, I think that's like one of the greatest accomplishments, like in TV. Oh, I thank you. I mean, I'm really proud of it. I uh, I don't think there's anything like it. I really uh, am so proud to have been a part of it, and uh, I I think you're right. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, you wrote on the, the Colbert's like very famous White House Correspondents' Dinner. So the funny thing about that is, is that uh, I am credited as a writer okay. on that, uh, but um, you know, the I came onto the Daily Show shortly after. I guess, I guess, I came on in January, and John hosted the Correspondence Dinner in April and May, and so I went to the Correspondence Dinner that year, mm-hmm. and it was fun. It was a lot of fun, and it was, but it was Clinton. Um, and I'd wa- and I watched the ones to follow, and my fear was that no matter how good we were at writing comedy, we would end up making Bush look like a fun, easygoing guy. And so I recused myself from writing on the um, the speech. Oh, interesting. And uh, I have one joke at the beginning, which is a dumb joke about where you park your cars, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I didn't have faith in Stephen to go hard, 
just that I didn't have faith in the institution of the White House Correspondents' Dinner to go hard. And uh, I was really appalled by Bush, and I didn't, I didn't want to be the guy making him look like a fun guy that could pal around. Mm-hmm. Luckily, that didn't happen, uh, but I don't get to take any credit for it. Yeah. It, I, I agree with you. The White House Correspondents' Dinner is such an odd thing. I mean, even when Obama was doing it, it feels kind of strange because it's like— I don't know. I think you're supposed to speak truth to power, but then you pal around with them at this yeah. dinner with all the media people who are also benefiting from it. What, I mean, what do you think of uh, Michelle Wolf's uh, correspondence dinner? I thought it was great. Yeah, I, yeah it's because it's one of the only ones where they like got like Colbert, that Colbert one, and Michelle Wolf are the only ones where they actually like criticized or did anything. I mean, people. I mean, I think uh, Wilmore did pretty well. I think you know there have been some good yeah. ones. But I love that the year after Colbert did it, they had Rich Little. Is that true? Yeah, the year they had. <laughs> The year after Colbert did, uh, Bush had Rich Little, and he did, and he did these like. It's actually worth watching because it's so instructive about like w- what they actually want, right? <laughs> and it's just old people. It's just like uh, he actually does the joke, and then like a vaudeville act, he kind of, Rich Little does this little thing. He he sings a little song in between his jokes that goes, "Tell a little joke, make a little poke at Washington." <laughs> Oh wow! Yeah, it's really amazing. That's that's like 2007. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah not wow. 1962. <laughs> Jeez, uh, but you obviously you you thought it was you were happy with uh, Colbert's. Oh yeah, I was thrilled with it. Mm-hmm. Do you think? I mean, I guess were you were you involved like in any way in terms of like knowing like did you know what he was gonna do? I didn't actually. I did not oh, see wow. the final thing before he went. Mm-hmm. So you were you were like at home and like oh shit. Uh, I wasn't at home. I happened to be at a. I was at a party. And it was some kind of comedy partner where they it was a bowl it was at a bowling alley. I can't remember what it, what it was, but for some reason there were enough comedy people there that we stopped bowling and watched <laughs> that. Yeah. And everybody was like everybody was just their jaws were open the whole right. time. And I and of course, you know, the first thing I was like, damn it, I should have done that. <laughs> yeah. I should have helped. <laughs> and you were you were at Colbert for almost like the entire run of the show, right? Yeah. What what was it like uh, when the show was ending and you knew you'd rather wrap it up? Um, it was sad in some ways, but uh, I definitely understood why Stephen wanted to move on, uh, and I understand. And I kind of was feeling the same way. And also because I had had it had initially had no interest in being a political comedian, I was excited by the prospect of going and doing kind of a general comedy show on a big network on CBS, taking David Letterman's place, the guy who I idolized, you know, mm-hmm. as a kid. Um, yeah, I was super, super excited about that. Mm-hmm. What, what was it like, Rick, writing those final episodes? Uh, it was very uh, emotional. There were a lot of... Uh, I remember, like, a lot of, like... Actually, I'm only thinking of the final episode. I was thinking there were all these famous people hanging around, but it was really only the fa- it was actually only the final episode that there were all these famous people hanging around. But um, yeah, I mean, I remember there it, there was like a sense that there was a lot that we wanted to get to before it was over. There was kind of a a feverish thing to kind of wrap up all the storylines and things like that. Um, it was exciting, and it was ex- yeah. Was there a lot of like uh, discussion of like how should we like end this character? Yes, I don't. Uh, you don't ask me specifics. I don't yeah, remember yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
So then, what, what was the transition like? Because you worked on the the Late Show. So what was that yeah. transition like of uh, from going to the Colbert to the to the new Colbert? Um, it was exciting in a lot of ways and uh, very frustrating in a lot of ways. Um, uh, we moved so we as we moved from doing four shows a week to doing five shows a week. Um, and it doesn't sound like that much more, but the the thing is, is that if you have Friday, you have prepare, a day yeah. you have a day to prepare, and you have a day where Stephen can go off and do field shoots and things like that. Um, and it just it felt absolutely, even after how difficult the Colbert report was, it felt absolutely insatiable, and like, uh, and I'm not sure that everybody felt this, but I felt like I was failing all the time. Like I was failing to keep up. I was failing to, you know, produce the kinds of things that the show needed, and that was partly because the show didn't know what it needed yet. Um, uh, and at the time, you know, we were a little uh, gun shy about going into politics because we feared that uh, once he started talking about politics, he would feel like his character. Luckily, uh, politics became something that we couldn't ignore. (laughs) And the show, I think the show show has thrived as a result. Mm -hmm. That is funny that you've been working on these political shows and you're like, Oh, finally I can do just a general comedy show. (laughs) And then it becomes where late night is just political for every show. So, um, it was more the uh, the reason why I went to Sam B was uh, after about a year and a half of uh, of the Late Show uh, was were some of those things the the um, the uh, the pressure of doing the five days a week show mm. uh, the again again the voice kind of came the voice of the show kind of became clear around the time that I left um, but. Uh, the idea of doing something once a week really appeals to me. <laughs> uh, and also the uh, the idea of, you know, with Hillary running, being on a show that was fronted by and led by women uh, was really exciting to me, mm-hmm. too. It, it was, I'm sure also uh, going from half hour to like the full hour was kind of crazy, too. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't that much more comedy. I mean, it's the same mm-hmm. thing that's going on with Conan going in the other direction. Like there's right. not that much less comedy now. That right. The show is a half an hour. Uh but it was the five days a week thing, and also just kind of being in that in that weird mode where we didn't know what the show was, mm-hmm. and it required you know three times as much writing, you know, to kind of figure out what our sweet spot was. Right. Um, I, I, and and had you know had Trump not come along, I don't know what that would have looked like. I'm sure we would have had to comment on whatever was happening in the you know race, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's interesting to think about. What um have you been watching the Conan the new Conan show? Uh, I've seen a couple, yeah. I've seen a couple. I thought there'd be uh less guest time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wish there's more Conan just like being funny. Oh, okay, yeah. I don't know. People, I mean, people like the Conan with guests too. I don't know. Conan's great. I love Conan. Yeah. Uh, but I thought there'd be more comedy bits. Do you, Do you feel like there were fewer comedy bits than there were? Uh, I, I hadn't been watching like the hour long as much, so I'm not sure. I mean, there's definitely like less monologue. Yeah. The monologue's kind of just Conan riffing with, uh, Richter, um, which is interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'll be interested to see what the show's like, you know, three months from now. Yeah. But yeah. When you're, uh, how do you approach like writing a monologue joke? Um, I mean, I really just, uh, take the, you know, take the setups 
right from the headlines and do my best with a with a punchline. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Do you ever like uh, finesse the the setups? Oh, sure, sure, yeah. yeah. And uh, you you're writing like five pages of these a day. Yeah, six or seven pages. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, not not like straight one line and after right. another, but like, yeah. Does it feel weird? Just like at the end of the day, you have to throw away. Um, you know, it's definitely something I've gotten used to over over a decade, mm-hmm. fifteen years doing it. Uh, but it's definitely one of the most terrifying things initially. But um, it's uh, it's definitely something you get used to, and it's actually the the reason why, you know, the number one advice I have for writers starting out is just write as much as you can because as much as you write you'll never be prepared for the amount that you're about to be right. <laughs> asked to write once you take a job unless I mean if you write a lot then it'll be fine for you <laughs> uh, and so when you went to the full frontal did you have to do a packet or anything I did not mm-hmm. for that one that was the first one I didn't have to do a packet oh no I didn't do one from Colbert but no I didn't have to do a packet in general how do you approach packets Um, I mean I, I, I don't I'm doing some I've done I haven't done a pack in a really long time mm-hmm. but I I do give advice and it's the advice that many people give is um you know the most important thing is to have the voice of the show and the second most important thing is to have the voice of you um they're both important um and it's a bit of a contradiction because you have to have as much of enough of the show so that they think it's going to be in the show but enough of you so that they need you more than they need somebody else right um, so, you know, pick, you know, pick a couple of moments where, where within the bounds of the show, there's, there's something that shows off your unique voice. Um, pick a cup, pick your moments for it. Um, don't, don't make, make it all of your script. Mm-hmm. Um, but make sure that there are a couple of times in there where they see something that's something that you have a particular affinity for. Right. Either in your style or topics or things like that. Mm-hmm. When you when you start a new job, do you find it uh, easy to get comfortable, like in the writer's room, to like in a new room and stuff? Um, it takes a little time. Mm-hmm. Do you like uh, the another another uh, thing that I would recommend? You know, it's kind of a piece of advice for people is, uh, you know, and I've heard this um, definitely from people in the sitcom industry, and I and. You know, when you're hired on a sitcom as a as a junior writer just starting out, your job is basically to shut up and listen. And I would say that that is the, also the case for a first-year writer on any show. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, you're shutting up and listening um, and just kind of taking in what the vibe of the room is uh, and looking for your best moments to contribute. But... Um, yeah, you sort of have to learn how the room works before you join it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, though, because I know a lot of late night shows, you're like on like 12 week contracts. Yes. And so uh, there might be like, I, I would think like maybe like, oh, I got to make sure that they know I'm, I'm like worth it to stick to give me another 12 weeks. Well, I mean, yeah, I, but, you know, you're doing your best, you know. You, yeah. It's not like I'm not saying be quiet, like don't say a word during the thing. Just kind of pick your moments and see your see your role there as much as to learn as to contribute mm-hmm. and uh when you're writing for like a full frontal segment those are obviously like very research heavy mm-hmm. very dense with uh, information how much of that research are, are you doing to like get ready for your for to write it um 
a little bit. Um, more often, it's you know, depending on where the pitch uh, came from, uh, there there is a staff of researchers, uh, and they're very very good um, at getting exactly what you need, both in terms of video and in terms of just kind of background information. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you know, you'll do your own research to to buttress that if you there's some particular thing you're looking for, but. Uh, yeah, you definitely have a lot of help in that regard. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned before, uh, Full Frontal is like a weekly show. Mm-hmm. So how do you? Uh, oftentimes, um, there's like a news story. Oh, you're shaking. He's shaking his head right now. There's oftentimes a news story. Like often. Do- <laughs> I mean, it's just like, yeah. That that was actually the number one factor in why I left is is Trump. I mean, it's just yeah. the job became so much about confronting that on a day to day basis that. Um, I just kind of lost my fire for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, it, it seemed like an opportunity to go and, and finally try, you know, something that's not political comedy. So I'm, I'm working on that. Um, but, uh, yeah, certainly that, that happened a lot where he would do something crazy at five thirty on Tuesday and we'd have to rewrite the show or even, you know three o'clock on Wednesday mm-hmm. uh, and we'd have to rewrite part of the show. How do you think uh late nights handled Trump in general? It's I'm kind of too close to it to yeah. make an assessment. Like, I don't know. I don't know how you handle it. Mm-hmm. I think we're doing the best that we can. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Cause yeah. it's like, you, you have to talk about it. Unfortunately, yeah. there's no way around it. And then it's like such a weird. There's like it's such a weird subject. Like the, the weird like minutia of it is like hard to make jokes about. Yeah, it's it makes comedy very very difficult. Like we're recording like I guess like a day or two after he called Tim Cook Tim Apple or something. Yeah, which is like I mean it's very funny. Right. And but, it's like what, what's the joke there? But there have been eleven hundred oh, other things thing. yeah. since he said that mm-hmm. that are crazy. Yeah. So. Would you, like on a weekly show? Like, would you feel like there were some topics? Like, if something happened, say, like you know, it airs Wednesday. Something happened like Thursday. You're like, oh fuck, I can't. Like, we can't do a joke about that. It'll be it'll be well out of the news by then. It depends on what it is. Um, you know, at a certain point, we stopped even trying to write jokes for Act One. I mean, we we would do things that we thought, okay, well, you know, this the Mueller investigation is ongoing, so let's write a couple of jokes about this aspect with the idea that something else is going to happen over the weekend, and we'll do that first, and then we'll do these jokes. Um, but you never felt like, ever, I never felt like I was up to date. This, uh, this chord's getting old. All right. Um... So uh, do you th- so Donald Trump? You think like him elected really changed the the scope of your job? Oh, very much so. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you because you were at Full Frontal like during the lead up to the election, right? Yes. And then uh, what what was like like doing an election day show like after he was elected? Uh, it was very much like nine eleven. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it was horrible. Yeah, and uh, it, it was a funereal like situation at the show for that week, and yeah. As someone who's done like a lot of political comedy uh, over the years, besides Trump, because that's like obviously a huge difference. But what's the big difference between like say when you started and now? I mean, the biggest thing is that you know every joke has been told on Twitter. By certainly mm-hmm. by the time we get on the air on uh, we we would get on the air on Wednesday, but you know for and 
less to a lesser extent for the daily shows but like you really had and I, I think that this was kind of you know one of the advantages of Samantha is that and of of Colbert the character is that they had and have you know a very unique perspective that unique take uh and that always made made it easy to differentiate our take from someone else's mm-hmm. um but uh it's yeah you have to just make sure that you have you have something to say about it that either isn't being said or isn't being said forcefully enough or isn't being said funnily enough somewhere else and that's very tough yeah to it do. is very tough how do you think uh I guess so. You're saying like the host, kind of the host persona, helps you stand out. Yeah. How do you stand out uh, if your host persona isn't there? Like, isn't like I mean, that different? every pro- host has a persona. Every, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's 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 your interesting time to be in late night. It really is. Yeah. I guess which is why I'm getting out. <laughs> well, it's funny because I guess you know if Trump loses the next election, it's going to be a much different landscape. Probably if it's a Democrat. Yeah, I mean, there'll always be things to make jokes about. Like I'm not, I'm not worried for sure. <laughs> I'm not worried about it. I'd be thrilled. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know what'll happen. Because if I mean if Hillary was president, I mean you'd imagine it wouldn't be as destabilizing every day as as I it think it'd be pretty destabilizing. Honestly, I think yeah. that yeah, I think that you know. All of this, all of the stuff that we see now, the the hatred and uh, and kind of uh, MAGA behavior, uh, I think it would still be there. I think it would yeah. be. I think that we would just see it as the opposition, uh, and it would be just as bad. We'd feel maybe a little bit better about it as if it were the opposition, mm-hmm. but I think I think all of the ugliness would still be there. It's interesting cause because I, I think that, you know, I feel like the reaction that we have to Trump, I think, is the reaction, I mean, that some people have to Hillary. Right, right. As, as irrational as that is. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because uh, I agree with you that, I mean, it's there for sure. It would have been there no matter what. It was there before Trump and it'll be there after he leaves. But it does feel like maybe because of Trump, there's sort of like the idea that it can be more public. Yeah. Which would maybe be different. Yeah, I feel like again, I feel like in reaction to Hillary a good portion of it would have come out. Right. That's true. No, that's like, true. Like I mean lock the locker up stuff was probably going to happen with yeah, regardless. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, tough time in America. Yeah. <laughs> uh so what would you like to be doing next? I have no idea actually. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on it. I'm, you know, trying to write some things and uh trying to just kind of uh rest a little bit yeah you, you're definitely thinking narrative stuff though more not definitely but yeah. it's something that i haven't tried yet i mean i'm in a weird position that i have i had always wanted to be in late night comedy that's sort of what i want to do now i've sort of done it mm-hmm. um which is a great place to be in some ways uh like i don't feel like i i i don't i have no interest in going back and doing another late night show mm-hmm uh, and what's and the other kind of comedy show that there is a sitcom. so uh it doesn't sound like I'm that passionate about it and I don't know if I am but uh I like I like sitcoms and um I like writing and I like going to a job every day so yeah I, and I like learning things so I would love to learn how to do that yeah that's great um okay so we're going to wrap up with you giving your thoughts on a sketch idea okay, great. I have so um a news anchor has to talk about like very uh depressing sad news but again, with each story, he wants to—he keeps like forcing in that he hit a double in a softball game the night before. 
so it's like after weeks of searching they they found the missing girl uh she was dead they actually found her at 8 43 p.m it's around about the same time i slid into second so stuff like that uh i actually i i think that what would help that idea is to ground it in like it seems a little weird for a, a person reading a script to to just go off and start talking about his thing so i think that the way to there's there's actually a way to keep the joke but with a setup which is um to um have ha, uh set it up with banter between the anchors mm. where there's just like light banter as they come back from a commercial break but the guy can't let it go like oh i see so he like he brings it up in the banter he brings it up in the banter and then there's a reason why he was bringing it back rather than cuz without without some kind of motivation like the 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 other anchor doesn't believe some part of his story. I see. And instead of being able to move on, like no, I really hit a double. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. Then it at least gives some drive for for that. Yeah, this is it gives it more more reason to exist. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. That's a good note. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Uh, cool. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah. So I do something that is actually not in the least bit related to comedy, uh, which is I have a collection of. Uh, incredible uh, amateur three-dimensional photography from the 1950s. Um, And I share it in these small salons, and I have one coming up at QED in Astoria on the 14th, I'm sorry, the 13th of of April at noon. And you can go to edrysdale.com to find out about that show. All right. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. been a boardwalk audio podcast for more information and shows visit boardwalkaudio.com don't forget to rate and subscribe now